0: And now we turn to God's Word this morning and that's found on or in our Bibles Genesis chapter 38 Genesis 38 and we are embarking on a series this Advent season (coughs) looking at uh, the different women that are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus so the family tree Of Jesus Christ and this morning we're looking at the first of the women mentioned there the person of Tamar this is Genesis 38 it's page 62 in your pew Bibles page 62 Genesis 38 and we'll be looking at uh, a different um, a different woman in Matthew's genealogy each Sunday right through Christmas Eve at least that's our plan right now Um, Genesis 38 is one of those chapters that perhaps doesn't get read all that often, especially in a public setting, but it's the Word of God to us this morning. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of a named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah Then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shalah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend, Hira the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then she sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah was now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enahim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shela," And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was given the name Zerah. Then I'm just going to read a couple of verses from Genesis, 1, or Matthew chapter one. This is how the gospel begins, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez, and Zara, whose mother was Tamar. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, I got on Ancestry.com this week thinking it might help just a little bit dealing with the topic that we're dealing with. I found out that they do a wonderful job of distinguishing between DNA results and family trees. And what they say is that DNA results can show you the big picture. They can show you, you know, generally the place where you might have originated, where you might have come from, and even show you some of the major migrations that might have happened in your family's history. However, they warn, uh, DNA will not give you the details. The details, they say, are in your family tree. That's why Matthew, I think, begins his biography of Jesus with a family tree. I mean, we know about his DNA, right? His DNA says that he comes from above, from God. And his DNA says that he comes from below, from Mary. His family history tells us a little bit more. I mean, it's confusing to think, well, here's a God-man. What exactly does that mean? And so Matthew gives us some of the details of what that means, of what it's about to be Jesus, to be the Messiah. He gives us a family tree. Now, in Matthew's day, a family tree functioned more like a resume might function in our day. For instance, if you were applying for the job, for a job, let's say, of uh, oh Messiah, something like that, you wanted to present the best resume possible. And so you mentioned names like King David because everyone knew that the Messiah would be the son of David, right? And it didn't hurt to throw in names like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob just to prove that you were actually a true Israelite. But it gets a little confusing when Matthew begins to throw in names like Tamar. Why would he do that? I mean, for instance, if you were putting a resume together, your resume, let's say for chief resident or chief of neurology at Johns Hopkins, something like that, you might want to put on your resume all of your degrees earned at places like Harvard or Princeton or Yale, but you might just leave out that your education actually began at the Hammond Community College. That one's probably not going to get you a lot of attention. But it seems like Matthew maybe never got that memo because he throws just about anybody in Jesus' family tree. And here's the proof. Judah and Tamar. Not exactly resume boosters. But they are a part of Jesus' family. They were two of the faces that sat around the dinner table when God got his family together. And sometimes your dinner table and who sits at your dinner table says a lot more about you than your DNA does. Think of the Doymas, for instance. They had a new face at their Thanksgiving table this year. And it's a face that comes with a story that begs to be told. In fact, I can imagine a scene just a few generations from now, perhaps when Junior is a great-great-grandfather or a great-great-great-grandfather, something like that, and his own children's children's children will be scrolling through their digital pictures and they'll come across a picture of a of a tall white guy with a with a goofy kind of grin and they'll look at him and they'll sort of giggle and say where did this come from and then they'll turn the page and they'll they'll see a bunch of blonde or brown-haired girls white girls and say, where did these all come from and junior might have to say well sit down and let me tell you a story And that's Matthew's plan exactly. He wants us to see Tamar's face, to hear her name in this genealogy, but more than that, see her face around his table, and he wants us to ask the question, why Tamar? Where did she come from? And Matthew says, well, I've got to tell you the story. Got to tell you the story. What's Tamar's story? Who is she? How did she end up at God's table? Well, let's look at that story. The problem is not many of us know this story. Not many of us have heard this story, and that's for two reasons, basically. The first is this, that modern, North American, modern day North Americans are not nearly as interested in genealogies as were Middle Easterners in Matthew's day. And so most of us begin Matthew's gospel not with verse 1, but we skip over to verse 18, don't we? That's where the story of Jesus really begins. We skip over the genealogy completely. The second thing against Tamar, the second strike against her, is where her story falls in the book of Genesis itself. It comes right smack in the middle of the Joseph story. I mean, Genesis 37 begins with the story of Joseph, and everyone loves the story of Joseph, right? We all want to hear the story of Joseph. And so chapter 37 tells us about Joseph's wonderful dreams, and it tells us about the coat of many colors, and it tells us about how his jealous brothers sold him into slavery and fooled his father with a robe right full of blood. And that's how the chapter ends. Joseph is on his way to Egypt to be a slave in the house of Potiphar. And we turn the page and we want to hear the rest of the story. But when we turn the page, what we find is not the rest of Joseph's story, but we find the story of Tamar and Judah. And quite frankly, we don't want to read the story about Tamar and Judah. We want to read about Joseph. For one reason, Joseph's story is G-rated, and most of Tamar's story is pretty much R-rated. And so no matter what God may have been thinking, or no matter what God may have wanted by placing Tamar's story right where he did, if your family was anything like my family, if your family may have, you know, read the Bible around the dinner table after an evening meal— My family just sort of skipped over the Tamar story. I mean, we want to read about Joseph, right? And so that's what we did. And it was like Tamar didn't even exist. But I think it's fair for us, especially as adults, to ask the question, why did God put the story of Tamar here? And why do we tend to skip over it? Could it be that God put this story here deliberately for one reason, so that we wouldn't think that his family is filled only with people like Joseph? And could it be that the reason we skip over it is because, well, we're kind of embarrassed by Tamar, embarrassed by the fact that one of the mothers of Jesus would actually be playing the role of a whore Of course we're kind of selective about our embarrassment and what we're embarrassed by aren't we i mean why are we so embarrassed by by tamar for instance who who deceived her father-in-law judah with a piece of clothing and and a goat but we're not embarrassed by jacob who deceived his own father right with the meat and the skin of a goat That we're not embarrassed by. And we're really not embarrassed by the fact that all of Joseph's brothers deceived Jacob himself with a piece of clothing soaked with the blood of a goat, right? In fact, we seem to be able to scrub the reputations of of Jacob, Israel, and Israel's sons. We scrub their reputations pretty well. And yet... Tamar's quest for justice and her quest to hang on to her place within the family of God, for some reason, that seems to give a black eye to the family tree of Jesus. And yet, to Matthew, Tamar is no black eye, Tamar has a story. And it's a story that better helps us understand Jesus, the Messiah, and the kingdom over which He reigns. And so, this Advent, let's uh, do what Matthew wants us to do. Let's let's listen to Tamar's story again. And when we do, we find that it's one of the earliest stories in the Me Too movement long before the Me Too movement ever became the Me Too movement. Tamar is one of the many women who has been victimized by men throughout history. And and she's not just a female victimized by a male, she's also one of the weak victimized by one of the strong. She's another outsider victimized by an insider. And friends, we can't turn a blind eye to that side of the story. Tamar is a victim and Tamar is on a quest for justice. And To understand that, we have to understand what's going on in Genesis 38. When we stumble upon the person of Judah, we find him sort of of like we find this story in Genesis. He's all by himself in the middle of nowhere. Judah has gone down to Canaan to fraternize with the Canaanites, and while there he finds himself a wife, who gives birth to three sons in rapid succession, as if they are not the main characters in the story. For his oldest son, Ur, he finds a wife. Her name is Tamar. She is also a Canaanite. She's an outsider. But the marriage doesn't last very long because Ur, we're told, was wicked in God's sight, and so God puts him to death, and Tamar is a widow. Now, there's a law in Israel that sounds very strange to our ears, but it was actually a broader custom throughout the Middle East at the time. The law states that if a man dies without a son, his brother must marry his widow and provide him with an heir. And so Judah follows the law here and he gives Tamar to his next son, his second son, Onan, to provide an heir for his brother. This custom was known as leveret marriage, and there were good reasons for it. For one, without any kind of social security system in place, a woman who was unattached, a woman who did not belong to a husband or or did not have a son to take care of her, a woman like that was vulnerable and helpless in this society, and she was often forced into a life of prostitution. It was the only way she could provide for herself. At the same time, it was a son who would carry on the family name. And that also was very important. It would keep, it would preserve a place in Israel for you forever. And in Israel, it meant even more because any heir could be a potential Messiah, the one to redeem your people, the one to save your people. And so without without a son, Ur's name would be erased from Israel. And without a son, Tamar's name would be erased from Israel. And so Judah follows the law, like we said, and he gives Tamar to his second son, Onan. But Onan appears he wasn't much of a team player either, and he didn't see how this arrangement could benefit himself in any way, and so he didn't carry out the spirit of the law, and God struck him down just as dead as his brother. Now, if you're following along on your scorecard here, you know that Judah only has one son left, and that's Shelah. And if things keep going the way that they have been, Judah himself is going to be without an heir very soon. And so what he does is he tells Tamar, well, Tamar, you need to get lost for a while. And when my son Shelah reaches marrying age, I'll bring you back. Now, why does Judas send her away? Well, part of it is fear, I think, right? It's what the text seems to imply, even superstition. He sees Tamar as kind of a jinx. Tamar's a jinx. She's bad luck. She's an evil outside pollutant. And blaming Tamar for all of his problems is sure a lot easier than the introspection it takes for Judah to look at himself and see if there is any unrighteousness in him and in his own sons. And so he blames Tamar. And when he does that, he leaves her sort of hanging out there in limbo And so Tamar is left to lead a widow's life. She has no other choice. She has no offspring. She has no chance to find another husband. She has no security in the world whatsoever. And Judah does this all because he's afraid, because he's prejudiced, and quite frankly, because he can. Because he's got the power to do that, and he's in control. But in Tamar, Judah found a little bit more than he bargained for because Tamar doesn't just roll over. Tamar doesn't just sort of fade into the woodwork like a good girl might do. Tamar actually stands up and she fights for justice. She fights for what she deserves. When she hears that that Judah is going to be passing her way, She gets out of her widow's clothes, she puts on a veil, and she seats herself alongside of the road, and Judah, her father-in-law, takes her for a prostitute, offers to pay her a young goat for her services, but Tamar is smart, right? And she wants some collateral until the goat actually comes. She doesn't want Judah just sort of disappearing into the wilderness. But she doesn't want just any kind of collateral, She wants Judah's seal, his cord, and his staff. What she's asking for here is equivalent to to his social security number, his three major credit cards, and his cell phone. And it's a good thing that she does because these are the only things that save her life when Judah passes his death sentence on her for getting pregnant while in her widowed state. Now, just... Think about some of the double standards that are at play here. For one, Judah sees no problem with himself visiting a prostitute whatsoever. But when he's told that his daughter-in-law is guilty of prostitution, he sentences her to death by burning. Now there's just a note here that burning was actually reserved for the most atrocious of crimes. Besides this, Judah finds someone to sleep with just as soon as he's finished mourning his or the loss of his wife. At the same time, he's perfectly willing to force Tamar for years to live the life of celibacy of a widow. And friends, it's important that we recognize these things because the text isn't minimizing sexual sins in any way whatsoever, but it is calling our attention to the double standard that often exists right here in our world between the sexual sins of men and those of women. So, we have to see that there is a sense here in which when Judah declares, Tamar, you are more right than me, he is saying what that word means. He is saying, you are more just than me. He's saying, I have done you an injustice in not giving you to my son Shelah like the law of God demands. I have done you an injustice. And Tamar says, yeah, you have, me too. But there's also a sense in which Judah means this, she is more righteous than me. She is more righteous than me. And that gives her me too a little different tone. And this is the tone that we really need to see this morning because Tamar doesn't just want justice, friends. Justice for Tamar means inclusion in the family of God. Justice for Tamar means that she also has membership in Abraham's family. That's what Tamar wants. Tamar, in her very, very brief experience in Judah's family, as messed up as that family was, Tamar tasted what life with a promise, what life with hope is actually like. And she was not about to let that life go. As all of the children were piling into the station wagon and Abraham was about to drive away, Tamar was standing at the side of the road saying, no, no, don't leave without me. Not without me. I want to be in the wagon too. I've got a seat in that car. Now, are we saying here that Tamar knew exactly what she was grasping for, what she was reaching for, When she sat herself down at the side of the road at the entrance to Enaam, did Tamar know that, that what she was doing was trying to hang on to her place in God's kingdom and in the family of Abraham, her place at God's table? Did she know all of that? No, I don't think so. At least not in a conscious sort of way. But then, did any of us really know that? in a conscious sort of way? Did any of us really know what we were longing for before we found a place in God's kingdom, our place at His table? I mean, doesn't it all start with each of us as just a yearning, just a longing for something more, a feeling that there's got to be just a little more out there A suspicion that there is a world that maybe we can't touch, but it does exist. It is there. Tamar's quest was like that, I think. She may not have completely understood it, but she had tasted what life is like at God's dinner table, and she was not about to let it go. And believe it or not friends this is one way that jesus says people enter the kingdom of god oh we may be more familiar with what else he says i think most of us are familiar with how jesus says you must receive the kingdom of god like a little child right and actually tamar fits that description as well because really the old testament definition of a little child is is anyone who depends fully on God for life. And it's often described as a widow, the orphan, and the alien within your gate. Tamar fits at least two of those descriptions. She is one of the children who must receive the kingdom of God as a gift. But Jesus says something else interesting about entering the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 16, he says this, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Imagine that. Everyone is forcing his way into it. What does that mean? What does it mean to force your way into the kingdom of God? Is that even possible? Why must we force our way in? Well, maybe it's because of the barriers that the rest of us erect and put in the way. Maybe it's because people like Judah and people like us, we say things like, well, you're not righteous enough. You don't look the way that you're supposed to to be here. You're just, you're just not quite right. And so some people have to force their way in. Usually when we think of someone forcing their way into a home, for instance, they're forcing their way into a place that they don't really belong. It's off-limits to them, right? That's not the case here it's not the case with the kingdom of God God has already made a place for us at his table in Jesus Christ and he has sent out the invitation and all of us are welcome righteous or unrighteous alike there is a place for us in Jesus Christ That's why Matthew, I think, begins his story with the story of Jesus with a genealogy. And that's why he points us to the story of Tamar so that we'll all understand and really get deep in our souls the true picture of why Jesus came. He came for all of us unrighteous ones. All of us. You know, Ancestry.com kind of cautions people. and They say, hey, if you're going to start researching your family, you have to understand a couple things. For one, there may be some really famous people in your family heritage, and you may be really proud. But you have to remember, there may be some really infamous people in your family heritage that aren't going to make you proud at all. Could be that your history includes Nazi collaborators or maybe the very people who constructed the laws of apartheid in South Africa. And they warn you, your family tree might change the way you look at yourself. Tamar could change the way you look at yourself. She should change the way you look at yourself. She should make us rethink also the meaning of our baptisms. Ask yourself this, friends. Is the gift of inclusion in God's family as precious to you as it was to Tamar? Would you do anything? Would you give anything? Would you risk anything not to lose that gift that you've been given? How much does that baptism mean to you? And friends, Tamar should change the way that we look at others, too. Just like you cannot scrub Tamar out of Jesus' past, you cannot scrub her out of Jesus' future either. Every Tamar that you meet is a potential member of the family of Christ. Everyone. That's why Jesus came. Friends, as long as we have Matthew's gospel, Tamar will be there. And as long as we read Matthew's gospel, Tamar will be with us. And as long as Tamar is with us, our baptisms will mean more to us And if our baptisms mean more to us, then perhaps one day way off in the distant future, one of your great-great-great-grandchildren who maybe has wandered from the faith might wander into this very sanctuary, maybe on a Sunday or on a Christmas Eve, and she might be bold enough to actually take a place in a pew And it could be that she sits down right next to one of Junior's great-great-great-grandchildren. And even though your descendant may look as lost as a goose flying north in December, as long as Tamar is still here, in this place, there's a good chance that Junior's descendant might just scooch a little closer to that great-great-great-granddaughter of yours and she might she might say you want to come over for dinner today or there's a place at my christmas eve table tonight for you she might say there's a place at my table for you just like there once was a place at god's table for me can i tell you the story Friends, remember Tamar. Her story tells us more about who Jesus really is. And where would we be without Jesus? Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, <clears throat> we sell you short far too often and we build ourselves up far too much. None of us is righteous, no, not one. Not apart from your grace and apart from your work on the cross on our behalf. None of us is righteous, but you have shared with us your very own righteousness so that all of us who ask you can come and sit at your table as guests of honor. This is our prayer for Junior. This is our prayer for each and every one of your baptized people and all of those that you have yet to bring into your kingdom. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.